Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Talk. We are live on the interwebs right now on the Twitches. Hello, I'm Greg Tito. Nice to see you. I am joined uh, by my lovely co-host, Bart Carroll. Hello, everyone. Filling in for uh, Shelly Mazzanoble, who is at Origins, or was at Origins this weekend. She was at Origins. She had a great time. Uh, she was telling me all about it, and now she is recuperating at home. Nice. Uh, I'm sure she's getting a lot of uh, uh, time to herself, as it were, today. <laughs> she's catching up on a lot of uh, DVR'd uh, Real Housewives episodes. <laughs> How many could have aired while she was away? A lot. So many. There's a, there's <laughs> so, a lot of real so housewives. Uh, so that is, of course, uh, our guest uh, for this first uh, interview segment here on the Dragon Talks is uh, Stan Brown. Hi, Stan. Hey. You are known in the, uh, uh, we want to start in the interview for real, but like the Stan exclamation point is is, is what you might That's, know him as. Yeah, you might. If, might. If, <laughs> if you knew me. <laughs> D and D producer and cartoonist extraordinaire. I, I've I've done many. Yeah, did, I've done many different things. Right now, yes, D and D producer and uh, cartoonist and sumo aficionado and lots of other things. Sumo aficionado. Oh my god, we have so much to ask about. Make sure we write, write that down on the notes. Uh, well, I will. <laughs> I was asking where you were born, kind of knowing the answer because I'm at a crossroads here. Uh, you were born in Brooklyn, which which Greg uh, had lived in for a while, but yeah. you went to school in Binghamton, Binghamton? which Shelley uh, is, is where yes. she's from. Yes, yeah, that's Shelley and I bonded over our our Binghamtonness, our Southern tierness, when uh, when I first got to Wizards. So Binghamtonness, yeah. I like that. It's the upper uh, uh, upstate New Yorkishness. Yes, it's right. It's it's called the the Southern tier of New York. It's the the northern the northern flat part of Pennsylvania and the southern flat part of New York. Right. So. Southern tier. And famous for its speedy. Speedy, food of the gods. <laughs> <laughs> did the speedy ever make its way down into uh, Brooklyn when you No, were no, never did. It's a very regional thing. Yeah, yeah, it's like tasty it's like cakes. 20, and... 20 miles outside of Binghamton, and they don't know what a speedy is. We had uh, like uh, sodas that were regional. That's the thing I never even realized was a thing. But Rascal was, I loved it. It was this raspberry flavored soda. I think it was in New Hampshire where it was never, made. Never heard of that. Yeah. I was, I was at the vending machine in my, in my high school for some reason. I was always like, yeah, Rascal. Lay it. The I best grew, soda ever. I grew up at an army base and we had generic soda. <laughs> That's what it was called? <laughs> yeah, generic there was a, soda. There was a generic brand of Well, there was. No, back in like the late 70s, early 80s, generic was a thing. And yeah. there was a whole brand of generic. You could get generic potato chips, everything. Just plain white wrappers. That, that reminds me of, uh, was that generic Repo Man? Blah. Was it Repo Man that uh, uh, he would open up the cupboard and it was like beans? Yeah. It was like, you know, <laughs> impact font on, on white uh, labels with nothing. Very, uh, uh, in, you're in the future now when you have <laughs> labels like that. Uh, but this is uh, Dragon Talk. Uh, we did this last week and we're doing it again. Uh, uh, all Every Monday uh, around 2 p.m. we'll start talking uh, with our guests uh, that we record for the Dragon Talk podcast, which comes out every Thursday. Um, and uh, we, talk, we delve into things with interviews with uh, D&D creators, as well as a lot of the people here in the building, as well as people outside who make stuff that is related to Dungeons & Dragons. Um, and uh, today we'll get to talk to Stan a little bit more uh, in depth. But before that, we have some announcements, uh, which I pronounce like that just so it seems cool. 
it, it seems much more official. It does when you say announcements. Yes, it makes it's like Belgian. Now I think. for some announcements. Uh, so as I said, we do this every Monday on Tuesdays. We're starting up dice camera action again. We took last week off, uh, but that's where Chris Perkins runs the Waffle Crew uh, through some uh, amazing. Uh, I guess they're in the more Storm Kings, Thunders, uh, Tomb of Annihilation type mm-hmm. storyline going on there. Uh, we've been doing it. I oh, got episode 100 was just uh, recently, so we're on 101, 102 at this point. It's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. A lot of times. Uh, 100 or 50? I want to say it's at least 50. I thought okay. it was about 52 the last time that I checked. It's amazing. They're, they're getting up there. They're getting up they there will in, hit in numbers. I know. I'm thinking I got mixed up with Critical Role having their 100th oh, yeah. episode, which, uh, you know, is with a huge milestone as well. Uh, before that, we're going to do some Dungeons and Dragons news starting at three thirty on Tuesdays. Uh, uh, me, me or Bart—I uh, don't know if he knows that yet—but me or Bart, if uh, uh, you're going to proxy for me, uh, and basically do these uh, these uh, very professional-sounding announcements uh, before Chris Perkins does his uh, uh, game, so that way he doesn't have to worry about that. He can talk about the storytelling, and we can go right into uh, that. Uh, Wednesdays, what's happening on Wednesdays? Nothing yet, but we'll be having a Misclicks weekly episode uh, with Misclicks D and D Risen. As well as uh, Maze Arcana, Maze Arcana on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, starting Maze. up shortly. Seven PM, right at the end of the month, uh, I believe that is occurring. And then uh, we had our first premiere of Girls Guts Glory: The Death Curse uh, last Thursday, and that'll be Thursdays at two PM. We will interview some of the girls uh, in that campaign, as well as show their new episode. Uh, there was a really good uh, first episode, of course. Uh, Ichabod uh, stole the show as uh, he is wont to do. Um, uh, and it was a lot of fun. So, and it was great talking to them and getting to uh, uh, hear what they think about when they're creating uh, their stuff, as well as all of the uh, costumes that they're doing there. Um, and that, I believe, uh, goes into everything that we're going this week. But we'll be right. premiering more shows um, on uh, Thursdays and Fridays with the Dragon Friends, as well as High Rollers. So mm-hmm. excited about all that. And, of course, you met all those groups at the Stream of Annihilation, which was June 2nd and 3rd. All of those videos are now archived up on both the twitch.tv slash dnd page, as well as our YouTube channel. So go check that out if you missed out any of the previewed content there. And, we'll be again, we'll be rolling out weekly episodes Oh, cool, because I was about to ask, what if I missed it? <laughs> exactly. That's what happens with streams. It's like, what do you do? It's, just, it's like live and it's gone. It's gone forever, but that's not true anymore. There's video on demand. I love it. Which makes it feel like you're in the, you're in, you have the control. You have the power. No, it, it, was, it was very exciting, and I, I haven't had a chance to thank everyone who was able to watch the streams as it happened, uh, to be a part of that as an audience member, and uh, to yourself as well. I know you put a lot of work into the stream of Annihilation, so congratulations for, oh, for that. Thank you. Me? That was me? I didn't do that. <laughs> I think it was Stan. It was really no, all Stan. Oh, no, it was all you. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, thank you. And Bart did a great job as well. Uh, uh, you, I don't know if anybody knows this, but you were like in the control center for the Stream of Annihilation, what they call Video Village. It was, uh, yes, in the control center, frantically trying to get the videos up. And as with uh, everything doing it live, there was a little bit of uh, wrinkles to, to smooth out along the way. But. I don't think the audience noticed at all. You always notice them when you're seeing it on the screen. It's true. So. That's the magic. Yeah. That's the fun. So, right, if you see any <laughs> That's wrinkles. That's what makes it good, right? Right. right? right. Right. If you see any wrinkles in the archive streams, we added those in post. That's Exactly, because it was too perfect but, when it first happened, yeah. so we had to add in some imperfections to make it feel more real. <laughs> 
It worked, yeah. <laughs> and the hosts, again, I know we've talked about this before, but the hosts were, were super fantastic as well. They kept things moving oh, at a really great schedule. Yes, so. Anna Prosser Robinson and Kelly Link, uh, super professional. And they were gamers themselves. We mm-hmm. made it easy. We didn't have to teach them about that. It was more just like, oh, D&D, yeah, we got that. We nailed that. Um, and Anna is, of course, uh, uh, Evelyn is her character on Dice Camera Action, and she does a fantastic job. And then Kelly is in uh, the Misclick show, mm-hmm. uh, uh, D&D Risen. So that's really exciting that they are both in it, and they win it. Oh, <laughs> it's a minute to win it. Yeah, I'm very confused yeah. now. Yeah. But anywho, uh, this was all about uh, Tomb of Annihilation and the new storyline, uh, which comes out uh, everywhere September 19th, um, and it'll be available in game stores September 8th. Uh, so you'll we'll, again we're going like previewing some of these stories over the course of the whole summer, um, and uh, you'll get some details eked out by watching everything there. But the adventure will be in your hands hopefully this September. So stay tuned for that. And as a D and D producer, let me tell you. You really want this in your hands. I, I, yeah. Because you actually, we actually I got know, out I, of the building, like, uh, uh, was that last week? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was a bit, it's a celebratory so a of, time here in the office. A lot of, lot of blood, sweat, and tears, mo- mostly sweat. <laughs> well, it's the jungles of Chult, after That's all. Right. Many humors, many, many fluids. Yeah. Well. <laughs> some aqueous humors. Uh, we we drained some eyeballs. <laughs> so, so you were part of it. You've, you've seen it develop along the course yes. of its uh, well, that's, project life. That's the beauty of being the producer is that everything kind of it, – it doesn't all roll across my desk, but it all rolls near my desk. Mm-hmm. I, get to, I get to have my eyes on things and have – you know, little, did, did you remember to put that in? So, this is in there, right? Oh, this is awesome. Mostly it's, oh, this is awesome, because <laughs> that's what it's like around here. Absolutely. Um, and you work closely with Jeremy Crawford. I do, I do, and, uh, and Chris Perkins and uh, all the other fine folks. Nice. Uh, well, speaking of Jeremy Crawford, uh, we're now going to have a sage advice segment with him, uh, delving into the ideas of uh, fifth edition. We didn't really want to do like a uh, sp- more specific thing. This is more just about like rules and adjudicating, and basically the the philosophy that Jeremy has taken in answering all of your questions on the sage advice uh, column, as well as on his Twitter feed. So, if this isn't Bing Bongs, what's the what's the uh, uh, theme song for? It's got Bing Bongs too. All right, well, we'll throw it to the Bing Bongs right now uh, with Jeremy. Hello and welcome to a segment of Sage Advice for Dragon Talk Live. Uh, I, this is the first time we're doing this live with you, Jeremy. Yes, it is. This is Jeremy Crawford, managing editor for Dungeons and Dragons, as well as chief rules developer. Yes, that's correct. Nice, nailed it. <laughs> you got it. All right, my multi-part title. I like the chief. Is the chief right? A uh, lead rules lead. developer. Lead. See, I, the one that was the one I was not sure of. Yeah. But I like chief. Chief also works because it's uh, you know it feels like it's uh, it's got more. Important behind it. I, I also go by Arch Wizard of Rules, if you prefer. Oh, I like that one. Can we do Arch Wizard of Rules? <laughs> That's way easier to roll. It rolls off the tongue a little bit more. Or, or as as I'm known online, just simply the Sage. The Sage. Yes. I like that too. Yeah. Uh, so this is the segment of the podcast where we go into uh, specific rules questions that Jeremy sometimes gets uh, on Twitter, as well as questions about things about uh, uh, fifth edition in general, and that's one of the topics for today. Uh, rather than doing uh, uh, a specific uh, rule, we're talking about more about like the philosophy behind uh, rules adjudication, as well as uh, you know the general versus the specific and things like that. So. Uh, yes, Jeremy, start us off. Where, where do you think we should begin here? So 
Occasionally, we revisit this topic, uh, whether it's been in the Sage Advice column. I think even in some of our Dragon Talk podcasts, we've sometimes talked about the philosophy of rules in 5th edition. Yeah. I'd like for us to come back to the topic every so often, about every once, every nine months or so, <laughs> because I think it's great for the community to remember why do we even care about rules? Right. What What's behind the design of the rules in 5th edition? Uh, what's behind the rulings I make uh, for 5th edition, because uh, if anyone who's joining us uh, doesn't know my role, in addition to being the managing editor and the lead rules developer, I was also the lead designer of the player's handbook, and I'm also the one person on staff who can make official rulings for Dungeons & Dragons. Nobody, and, I've tried. I've tried <laughs> on Twitter to do, and uh, I'm always like, I, I, I always give it up to you, because I'm always like, I think I've heard Jeremy say this, but he's the, the ultimate arbiter of this. Right. But in, because of that situation, it's good for us every now and again to catch our breath and, and talk about what does it even mean when I make an official ruling? Right. And how do all these things go together to create the D&D experience that so many of us love? Yeah. And we talk about uh, storytelling so much with Dungeons & Dragons because it is basically a framework to tell stories with your friends and getting into that. And uh, I've said that a few times and, and in conversation and people have said like, well, then why, why we spend so much time on the rules then mm. if it's mm-hmm. just a storytelling game? Uh, but I think that speaks specifically to what you're talking about here is like the, the, that framework is what is very important. And, and you get right there to the heart of it. Uh, the rules are there to serve the storytelling mm-hmm. of each D&D group. The storytelling that is sort of conducted by the dungeon master. I'm thinking of the DM almost like a conductor of a symphony. And, and you know, the players are each playing their instrument. Mm-hmm. And together, uh, they sometimes create beautiful music. Sometimes it's a funny cacophony. Uh, <laughs> but at its best, it's usually fun, funny, sometimes moving. The rules are there to provide a framework for the action. Mm-hmm to provide a way to resolve the, the, the simple question of, do I succeed at this or not? Right. The rules at their heart are there to answer that question. The rules are also important uh, because it helps create a common experience. Mm. If every group was just gathering and doing improvisational storytelling, that's just storytelling. What, what turns it into Dungeons & Dragons is... A, the common high fantasy genre that runs through all D&D storytelling. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then it's also this common framework, these rules, uh, because because of the rules, when you say, hey, I played D&D last Thursday, and if I say, yeah, I I ran my home D&D game a couple of weekends ago at my house, because of the rules and the common understanding of what those rules do, People know what you mean. Like, oh, I mm. know what a D&D experience is like in general. You know, the particulars are different in every game session. Right. Even if two groups are playing the exact same published adventure, their experience of that adventure is going to be different. Right. Yet there's a common understanding of sort of what the machinery of that experience was like. That yeah. Like when a fight broke out, everyone who plays D&D knows, okay, initiative was rolled and people rolled to hit and damage was rolled. It creates this, this lingo that we all share and kind of a touchstone for, ah, this is – these elements – pop up in every D&D story. Yeah. So the rules help create a through line. 
I like your analogy to to musical performance because it does the more everything you're just talking about. I'm like, oh right, well that's like the the idea of musical notation, or, mm-hmm. or even as you said, the conducting. Like there's certain conventions and tropes means that someone uh, uh, who plays in an orchestra and shout out to Lauren uh, Obo Crazy who plays in an orchestra who's actually I think in the chat right now uh, who made me think about it. But like uh, you know that you can go to uh, uh, play with a group that's in Russia and play with a group uh, uh, instruments here in America, and it doesn't matter because the common language of what uh, the musical notation means means everybody can kind of speak to the same. The music is, is all going to be the same, and that's very similar with Dungeons & Dragons. Absolutely. And the rules also do one other thing for us, and that is combine storytelling with gameplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are a lot of people who come to D&D excited by the stories, but they also want to really dig into customizing a character, figuring out you know, how powerful can they make this person. Or in the case of a dungeon master, it might be someone who really loves creating the game mechanics of a new monster or designing mm-hmm. a new magic item. So the rules also give us a toolkit for kit bashing, for making new things, but all again within a common framework. So that even if a DM creates a brand new monster, that no one has ever seen before. Because of the rules, there's a framework for how people will interact with that monster that is familiar and and, and helps, again, create that common D&D experience. So all of that said, the rules, and I've said this many times before, the rules are secondary to the story. Mm -hmm. I always always like to uh, equate the rules to a butler. Uh, And, you know, the rules are there to serve up a nice nice experience, but the rules are not the master of the house. Mm. The master is the common story that's being told, and the person who oversees the telling of that story is the dungeon master. And so first and foremost, the rules are a butler in service to the dungeon master. And, And that isn't just sort of a nice guideline. That is itself a rule of the game. Uh, <laughs> right. One, one of the most important rules of the game is that the DM's say overrides everything else. Right. Uh, so Not just at the table, uh, but like, you know, through character creation and all that. Absolutely. So that's even true of my rulings. I often like to remind people that even though I'm the only person who can give an official ruling for sort of the game itself. Right. What you were intending when you were writing it down. Yeah, exactly. No matter what I say, the dungeon master at every table holds sway. And so the DM can ignore whatever I say. And yeah. that, that's, we want that. If, if let's say a rule that we wrote or a ruling that I provide is exactly the help that a dungeon master needs, it's exactly the thing that helps something run smoother or brings more smiles to the players' faces or makes them laugh or what have you, mm-hmm. awesome. Then I, then I want the DM to, to take that rule or take that ruling and run with it. But if I ever say something where the DM is like, uh, eh, that doesn't feel right for our table or, you know, we've been doing it a different way all this long, uh, all, all this time, or we have a house rule that we like better than the official rule, I want that DM to ignore whatever I said <laughs> and do what feels best for that particular table. Because one of the beauties of D&D is that each of us as a dungeon master yeah. can customize the game experience on the spot to bring more smiles to people's faces. Mm-hmm. I mean, I often, when I'm DMing, and this actually goes back to uh, when I was in theater. I did a lot of acting uh, through high school and college. And often when you're on stage, 
whether you're an actor or a stand-up comedian or what have you, you're often trying to get a read from the audience. Right. And, and to me... Sometimes to your detriment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You can, you, can, you can fall down that rabbit hole. and Pretty and, quick. It, yeah. And it can take you to places where suddenly kind of blow up your performance. Yeah. Uh, but but you get the, a skilled performer can, can read, oh, this is working and continue giving the audience what they want in, it, that, in that vein. Exactly. While keeping in mind the story you want to tell, you know, you don't want to lose the thread of, of your own story or of, you know, the game experience you're creating. Yeah. But it's great that a DM can kind of tweak on the spot, can pivot, can, t- can adjust how something works. So do you, when, uh, just going back to uh, uh, what the DM says at the table goes, like, do you, do you ever get uh, uh, spontaneous rules, uh, questions coming to you at conventions or things like that? We're like, oh, you said this and you said this and what's the right thing to do? The, and, and how do you respond to that? The, the right thing to do is always what the DM says. Uh, I can, again, provide sort of the official ruling on what we meant by a particular rule. Uh, I can help explain the rules that are there. Uh, I can point to, you know, where the rules are because sometimes uh, given how, how many pages are in our book, sometimes people just, they don't know where the rule is. Right. And, and so sometimes we just need to say, hey, here's where you can find mm-hmm. the rule that, that answers the need that you're expressing for your game. Uh, but beyond essentially being there to provide uh, clarification, uh, to talk about our intent, mm-hmm. uh, to point the way to where people can find the rules themselves, again, at the end of the day, it's really up to the DM. Uh, and that that's really important to us because that helps preserve the dynamism of D&D. Mm. It, it means that a, a DM should never felt, feel bound by, uh, you know, what, what I said somewhere in an FAQ. Uh, it, the DM should feel free in the moment following his or her gut, right. knowing better than anybody else what that particular group of players is going to enjoy gives them the freedom to make rulings and to conduct their game in a way that's going to bring the most fun to their group. Because Mm -hmm. that, at the end of the day, is what it's about. It's not about pleasing kind of an abstract D&D audience, you know, sort of imaginary people. You know, we we don't create D&D for sort of a realm of platonic ideals. This is D&D for the angels. (laughs) You know, it's... it's, it's a uh, it's D and D for real people. No D and D game uh, uh, survives contact with the enemy. Is that what you're, <laughs> that <laughs> right. kind of idea? Yeah. Uh, has that always? I mean, this philosophy has this always been true of Dungeons and Dragons, or is this a kind of fine tuned for how you approached Fifth Edition? So uh, this was really the philosophy in the game's uh, earlier days, and it's always been a part of the game's mix. Uh, but that said. As, as the game has evolved through its various editions, at various times, there's been a greater or lesser emphasis on sort of what the official rules are. Mm-hmm. Um, the previous two editions before fifth definitely had a bit more of an emphasis on what are the official rules given by Wizards of the Coast. Mm. And, and almost in a way to kind of like DM-proof the game, um, the, to kind of standardize it in a yeah, way, right? To like yep. for 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 um, adventurous league play or mm-hmm. before that the RPGA play, like yeah. So that Whereas we we in fifth, uh, and this goes all the way back to the earliest days of the D and D next playtest. We really embraced as our philosophy: this is a game 
run by DMs for other human beings. And, and each of these DMs needs to feel like they have the liberty to run the game in the way that is going to please each particular group of players uh, as much as possible. Right. And, I, and I always emphasize diff- each group of players because even I as a DM morph a little bit uh, whenever I am DMing for a different group. Right. For example, when I DM my home game, my and, and my home game includes players like uh, you know uh, Chris Perkins and James Wyatt, both on staff here. Both have done, of course, tons of work on the game. Mm-hmm. My home game is just drenched with story, and we can easily have you know out of a four-hour session, two or three hours where I'll look back at it and it's like, wow, they just walked around and talked to everybody in town, <laughs> and and they. They went shopping, and not only did they shop, they talked to every shopkeeper. What is your story? How are you connected to what's going on in this city? They just love to dig deep into uh, my setting. Uh, Whereas, uh, particularly sometimes when I'll DM at a convention, I'll get a read on the table, and it's like, these people want some action. Right. And They want to get in the thick of it. Yeah, and so there, suddenly, my emphasis is going to be much more on, let's get that initiative rolled as, as soon as possible, and they're going to throw down. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that, that the, the, this current edition embraces all those play styles, too. Yes. And it's like whatever is right for that specific group, and it's a good way of putting it, is that, that group of people. Because there will be certain players who you know, might sway one way even at the same table. Um, but you always want to balance that as, a, as the dungeon master. And, and the framework that's in fifth edition is, is, is prime for, for that. Now, we do, that all said, we do still want there to be a common experience. We do still want there to be a foundation of rules that every group can rely on so that when we say we're playing 5th edition D&D, it means something. It means something. Right. Uh, and, and so that's why we ensured through the playtest process and thanks to the feedback of uh, tens of thousands of playtesters, we made sure that the core of the game was solid and also simple. Because we wanted to make it so that it was not a labor for DMs to remember the basics of the game. We right. wanted the, you know, all those really fundamental rules to, to be pretty lean, to be solid, to be easy to remember. And then to make sure that when the rules started to get a little detailed and finicky, it was sort of pushed away from the core mm. and more kind of onto the fringes, more in the kind of the exceptional parts of the game with the understanding that some groups will forget those those rules that don't come up as often and the game's going to be okay. That's all that's the the other thing that's a part of our philosophy of this is a game run by DMs for particular groups is it's okay if a rule got forgotten uh, because often it's just going to come out in the wash. Uh, because because this is a co-op game, that's the other important thing about the philosophy of D&D rules. This is a co-op game. Everybody at the table is trying to work together, including yeah, the dungeon master. Exactly. The DM can often, let's say, let's say the DM forgot a rule or ruled in a particular way that harms the players in an unintended fashion. Yeah. Uh, rather, their characters. I certainly hope the DMs aren't <laughs> harming the players. Um, uh, if your DM players is harming you, uh, call 911. Uh, it's a cry for help. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the DM, if the DM discovers he or she has done something uh, they didn't intend and the characters uh, you know, ha- have suffered some unintended adverse effect, 
because it's a co-op game and because the DM is in control, the DM can often course correct. Mm-hmm. If not on that in that very moment, often later in that play session or in a subsequent session. Right. So even when, you know, again, rules are forgotten or they're misunderstood or misapplied, it's rarely going to harm the game because we also have built the system to be flexible and resilient. Right. Um, we, we point out uh, in the Dungeon Master's Guide in particular that you can actually kind of get a little loosey-goosey with a number of rules as long as you're pretty strict as a DM about just the few rules we have in place that are really there to control certain effects from getting completely out of hand. Like we, we tell the DM in the Dungeon Master's Guide – Make sure you follow the rule on concentration for concentration spells um, unless you want a bunch of stacking magical effects, which not only would make certain monsters and spellcaster player characters too powerful, but actually more importantly to us would just bog the game down. It would make it go really slowly. Uh, one of the reasons why... Because if you're tracking each each buff that you could possibly put on there, and then in right. the previous edition that was you know, uh, a necessary tactic by the time you got to, you know, 10th, 15th, 20th level was the, okay, let's spend five minutes making sure all of our buffs are on. And I'm, I'm sure people had like that experience in 3.5 or 4th where it was like, we have the standard array of buffs that right. we say, all right, we cast all of our buffs right. and then make it all happen to kind of hand wave it a bit. But, you know, 5th, I've never had that experience. Well, and... and and the big reason for that is in the D&D Next playtest, one of the bits of feedback we got over and over again is people wanted the game to play quickly. Yeah. Uh, they wanted combat to feel speedy, to still be interesting and have a lot of, uh, lot of potentially deep tactical options, but to still move forward at a nice pace. And so we made sure, and the concentration rule is one way we did this, uh, to really to – really gain kind of control of things that previously in the game had caused the game to really slow down. And mm-hmm. so one of those was having a bunch of concurrent magical effects. We also we also tell DMs, watch out about uh, going against the rule about attuning to more than three magic items. Right. Um, now, where did that come from? So in... In previous editions, occasionally magic items have been controlled through what were called slots, uh, almost like imagining, you know, kind of like in a video game where, you know, yeah, you, have you have your eight slots. Yeah, and, and, right. and you put items in. And Ion Stones were good because they didn't take up a slot. And, and, and we, what we decided is we wanted to simplify that, uh, particularly because sometimes you, you could actually, you know, the slots really abstracted and said, okay, you can have only one cloak, even though we know a person could actually layer two cloaks in the real world. Um, <laughs> I, I layer all the time. It's very important. <laughs> yes, yeah. especially and, in Seattle. And when, if you take a cloak off and wrap it around your waist, <laughs> Does that count? Are you still getting the magical benefits of that? So so actually we wanted to provide the kind of flexibility where that sort of creative play would be possible. And so we really just simplified it down to you can attune to three magic items, whatever they are. Would yeah. you, like That could mean you could wear three rings. Um, and we went with three uh, partly because it, it was a nice controlled number. And as we designed the magic items, we're like, yeah, we can live with – up to three of these sort of ongoing effects being in place at a time. Yeah. But also three is just nice because in fantasy and myth, often... The trilogy. Yeah, yeah, and often, you know, the, the sort of like magic things often come in threes. Yeah. Uh, so three it, rings for the Elven Kings. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we, you know, so there's there's also a little bit of a mythic quality to it. And 
I love talking about that aspect of our design because I often will get asked, you know, is, is this or that rule or this or that piece of design, is it all about the balance? Is it all about us worrying about something breaking? Balance is really important to us. But we also make a lot of design decisions that are really about fantasy resonance. Mm. And, and we often won't explain them fully, uh, partly because we want to inspire. We want there to kind of be a creative space for a DM to come in and interpret what these things mean. Yeah. But a lot of the things we do are based on what's resonant from folklore, fantasy, some of the pop culture that influenced D&D in the past. Yeah, I never heard the the reason why three was the number yeah. of magic items chosen, and that yep. immediately went to all of those things and, in my head. And because the, the rule of three, uh, was, it's a particularly a big deal in uh, the Planescape uh, product line, um, where, you know, point out that, you know, there are many things in the D&D multiverse that come in threes. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, and you you even see that in very classic in very classic fairy tale fashion, with our hag covens. That you know, it's three hags. Of course, it could be more, uh, but but that Macbeth. I mean, it's always going to be three witches yep. in my mind. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so the game is actually filled with things like that. Uh, that if you you know you look under each rock of the game or behind each tapestry, it's like yeah, there's rules there and. Yes, we have spreadsheets where we were, you know, working out the balance, but also part of it at the end of the day is that we want it to feel like this game exists in a world of fairy tales and high heroic fantasy adventure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it feels, it feels mythic. I think that, yeah. that you, you said that word earlier, and mm-hmm. I, I, I hadn't really, you know, kind of latched onto that as, as you know, the, talking about fifth edition rules, but it does kind of feel that way in a way that... Anybody can look at this and be like, oh, this is part of the fantasy that is now woven throughout all of our culture. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, yeah, Jeremy, you wanted to talk specifically about uh, how the specific rules in Dungeons & Dragons uh, take precedence over the general rules and even just what the idea of what general and specific means for some folks. Because you get a lot of questions on this. Yeah, and so the the Player's Handbook gives you – just a couple of things you need to know up front before you dive into the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. One of them is whenever the game gives you a fraction, round down. It's kind of a funny thing to be forefronted. But there are many things in the game that have you dividing or, or multiplying, what have you, always round down. I love that rule because it means math is like just out the door. You don't need to really think <laughs> about fractions as much right. as you had in previous editions at all. You could just be like, all right, doesn't matter, down to the nearest but, integer. But it is funny that even though that rule is right there at the beginning, I get asked this a lot. Like in our, our recent Unearthed Arcana series, uh, there were sometimes uh, class features uh, where it would say, you know, add a number equal to half your warlock level or something like that. And people were like, well, do I round up or round down? And again, the rule is you round down. Right. Is there ever an exception to that? Yes. Sometimes there are exceptions. And so that now goes to the other universal rule, which is the specific, if it disagrees with the general rule, wins. So what that means is if anywhere in the game there's a rule that, for instance, says – the sky in all D&D worlds is purple. <laughs> but then you read a text somewhere about a particular world and it says, in this world, it's not purple, it's blue. Well, that is more specific than that other w- rule. And so that one wins for that context. Got it. And so what that means is even though there's the general rule that says round down, you might though come across a place that says round up. And so if a particular 
class feature or monster ability or what have you in the game says round up. Well, in that case, you ignore the general rule and you pay attention now to the specific rule, which we often refer to as an exception. Right. Uh, where, the, again, the exceptional beats the general. And in game design terms in general, <laughs> uh, you know, that is an exception-based design type idea where there is the, 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 is the design about how combat works in Dungeons & Dragons, but then most of the class features are exceptions to how those rules work. And that's where the power of a specific class or, or ability or spell comes from is by breaking the rules that you set forth in the general. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, really, you, you put your finger on it. Really, almost every class feature, feat, monster ability could be thought of as a way in which that thing is somehow breaking the general rules. Right. And that's what makes it exciting. That's what makes it powerful. Uh, now, to really get into this approach to game des- design, this what's called an exceptions-based design, you first need to understand what the general rules are. Right. And the most important general rules of the game uh, most of them are in part two of the player's handbook, which is called, um, uh, handily enough, huh, actually, I should have had it open. This is why I always have my books. <laughs> it's called Adventuring or? No, no, no. That's actually one of the chapters in that part. Oh, uh, I see. Uh, but Oh, the part one, part two. Yes. The player's handbook is divided into three parts. Part oh. two is called Playing the Game. And most of the game's general rules are in this part. So this part is divided into a chapter on using your ability scores, a chapter on adventuring, that's the one you're thinking of, uh, the chapter on combat. Uh, And then in the next part of the book, which is uh, all about magic, we then also have the rules all about Mm spellcasting. If a person reads those four chapters, they're going to know most of the general rules that govern the entire game. Mm-hmm. There are a few other things that are also good to read. Like if you're going to use magic items, you should read the magic item introduction in the Dungeon Master's Guide right. because that provides the general rules for all magic items. And then if you're a DM and you're using monsters, you're going to want to read the introduction of the monster manual because that provides all the general rules for using a monster stat block and how to interpret it. Once you know what the general rules are, oh, and there's actually another bit that's important to read because it comes up so often, and that is the appendix in the player's handbook uh, all about conditions. Uh, Right. Because so many rules in the game, whether it's a class feature, a spell, a monster ability, a magic item, rely on an understanding of what the different conditions do. Conditions like, you know, prone, unconscious, restrained, blinded. Yeah, all that and uh, what those definitions are because so often, the same with exp- exceptions, you know, the, the class abilities will either bestow those conditions on things so it's very important to understand those but also be like, oh, you can do this while blinded or you can do this while stunned when you wouldn't normally be able to. Right. Uh, also, for, for any listener who's not uh, aware of it, uh, most of these general rules are also available for free in our basic rules PDF on the D&D website. Oh, that's a good point, too. Right. And, and also, most of these core rules appear in the little rules booklet in the starter set. Mm. So there are several different ways to get your hands on uh, these rules that form the kind of the engine for everything else. I love how compact those are. I mean, you're, you're talking about the play. I was going to say, oh, the player's handbook is where all the, ge- the general rules are, but you're really just talking about that one part. And it's like 
30 pages, 40 pages? Yeah. yeah, actually, most of the player's handbook is exceptional stuff. Yes, exactly. Spells, like class features, and whatnot. And that was intentional. Uh, I worked very hard when uh, crafting the final form of the fifth edition rules to try to get them to be as concise as possible uh, so that they could fit, for the most part, in the starter set. They could go in, the, in, in a free product like the, the basic rules online. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make it so people could wrap their heads around these these basics because they're then going to be bombarded with exception after exception after exception. Right. Uh, and one of the really important things once you're dealing with those exceptions is, A, remember that they always override a general rule if they disagree, and B, an exception, whatever it says, mm-hmm. only applies to itself. I bring this up. Oh, okay. I bring this up because often a person might read a spell. They'll read uh, a spell like Burning Hands that says it sets any unattended flammable object in its area on fire. Right. Then a person might come across another fire spell that doesn't say that. And they'll think, hmm, that other fire spell says it does this thing. I bet this other fire spell is meant to do that too. That isn't how an exceptions-based game works. Once you're into an exception, whether it's a class feature, a spell, any other sort of small, discrete game object in the game, Mm -hmm. whatever it says inside it applies only to itself. Now, that's true for a number of reasons. A, it means that when we're designing and developing the game, basically everything can sort of stays in its lane. You know, they're not crashing into each other. it, it helps us craft each thing so that it does exactly what it needs to do for itself uh, without a bunch of undesirable interactions with other things. Because the danger of that is that if, if, if the example that you gave is true, then you have to think about every spell that involves flame, right. whether it's green or purple or whatever. All of a sudden, you, like the, the, the extrapolation from that makes it very difficult to design a game uh, uh, because everything interacts with each other. And so if you're curtailing it back to, okay, no, this rule is only about this rule and this rule alone, it's much easier to, uh, uh, you know, actually have a, a vibrant game, right? Because then... Well, it, it, well and that, that actually relates to one of the other big reasons why we make sure an exception applies only to itself. Because we want the game not to be a total chore for DMs and players. Because really what that means is we want the play experience to be, like, let's say you cast the spell Thunderwave. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is, as long as you understand the general rules of spell casting, is you just read what Thunderwave does, and that's what Thunderwave does. Right. You don't have to worry about what five other spells do to try to interpret how Thunderwave works. Thunderwave just does what it does. Right, and there's definitely some times where you repeat things in the spell descriptions, you know, and the, I, I like that, too, because it doesn't feel like you need to have this encyclopedic knowledge of all spells in order for you to be a spellcaster. Right. You just need to really know how you do that one thing, yeah. and it's all right there. Just, just like uh, if you know, you're know you reading a class feature uh, of a particular subclass, like let's say you're looking at the Way of Shadow and the Monk. Mm-hmm. Its class features and how they work have no bearing whatsoever on how any other subclass's features work. They only pertain to how they work. Right. Uh, but everything in the game does assume a familiarity with the general rules. Here's a great example. 
in the combat chapter mm-hmm. of the player's handbook, and again, also in the, the basic free basic rules and in the starter set, we tell you one of the important basic rules of the game, which is if you're making a melee weapon attack, no matter with what, a, what weapon, if any kind of melee weapon attack, you use your strength for that. If you make a ranged weapon attack, you use dexterity. That is true. In the entire game, unless something specifically tells you otherwise. Yeah. I bring this up because in also in the recent Unearthed Arcana series, some of the new subclasses might have some like special weapon they create or what have you. And we would say in a feature, all right, you make a melee weapon attack with this thing. And the question that I would often get is, well, do I use strength with this? And the answer is always yes, uh, because the general rule said so. And a general rule is only shut off in a particular instance if an exception specifically contradicts the general rule. Right. So if you wanted to use a different ability score or something like that, the, the, the specific rule would say, and then the, you know, make a melee attack, in this case, using dexterity, or make a dexterity-based attack, you know, or however you would put it. It would be much better than what I just came up with. <laughs> but that's pretty close. Yeah. It's like, for, for a great example of, of making an explicit exception is in the Unearthed Arcana series, the Hexblade mm-hmm. had the ability to use charisma uh, for certain melee weapon attacks instead of either strength or dexterity. Right. And that's spelled out in the class feature. There is also a, a piece of the game uh, outside of class where people can use a score other than strength for a melee weapon attack, and that is when a person's using a weapon with the finesse property. Right. The finesse property is another example of an exception where that property tells you you can use either strength or dexterity for this this melee weapon attack when you use this finesse weapon. Mm -hmm. But again, that applies only in that exceptional case. Uh, Otherwise, the general rule holds that if you're making a melee weapon attack, you're doing so with strength. Right. Yeah. All right. I I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, And it's a good way to think about the whole over, you know, Framework about how we, we we put together. I keep saying the word framework. That's like I've been watching Agents of Shield too much. <laughs> I'm in the framework right now. Um, but uh, I, I just I don't know. I like I like talking to you about this because we can kind of get behind what is going on with the rules, and then when we introduce new stuff like the Unearthed Arcana uh, series that you keep mentioning, uh, uh, it's it makes it even more interesting when we come from this common ground and things to to go from. So thank you so much for. Going through all this, is there anything else you wanted to hit on that specific philosophy before we get to some questions? Uh, the the one thing I would say is actually enough of these questions came up in the Unearthed Arcana series that uh, as I'm finishing up work on our upcoming book, Xanathar's Guide to Everything, yes, uh, I am trying to carve out just a little bit of space in the book uh, to put in a like top 10 rules reminders thing to take up again, only like a page or two in the book early on, uh, because there are some of these general rules I have found uh, that get missed quite a bit. Sometimes it's because, you know, they're buried somewhere in one of our books. Uh, We, you know, could have done a better job of highlighting them or forefronting them. Um, But whatever the reason, I realized uh, sometimes it might be good for us to have a kind of little cheat sheet of 
to, checklist. Yeah, like, these are the ones. If, if before you ask a question of sage advice, uh, you know, hit these. Make sure it doesn't already get covered. Well, and and also just you know, make sure make sure you remember these as you are about to dive into this host of new options. Oh, uh, right. So that, that makes sense. So that you're not thrown uh, by some of the things that you're going to see. Nice. Uh, well, I'm excited about Xanathar's Guide to Everything uh, coming out this November, uh, mm-hmm. and it's got a new alt cover uh, with uh, that's made by um, Hydro 74, mm-hmm. which looks really cool, so you can check that out in game stores. I think it's November 21st is the wide release, so that means November 10th is when you can pick it up in game stores. So I was, I was working on it right before I came into the studio. Oh, nice. <laughs> and we'll be hopefully attaching, checking with you over the, the, the course of the summer and the fall as we uh, uh, do more of these online. Uh, where can people uh, find out? Uh, where they can get questions sent to you uh, on Twitter or, or where do you uh, want to send people? Uh, the best place is on Twitter, um, at Jeremy E. Crawford. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Jeremy, for uh, uh, joining me for this. And uh, stick around for just a couple seconds and we'll do some questions from, from the chat. Uh, but thank you very much. My pleasure. And now we're recording again. Yay! You guys saw the magic of podcast making (laughs) in happen. We're cleaning this all up. It's actually a lot more yelling and screaming at each other as we're recording these, uh, especially when Shelly's here. I mean, you're being very well-behaved, Bart. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Good call. All right. So, so yeah, let's stand. Let's delve into – well, first, before we get to, like, what you actually, you know, do now, let's talk about what you did – in the long past. In the long ago? In yeah. the long, long, long ago? The long history of the soul. Um, uh, so when did you start uh, playing Dungeons & Dragons? Let's start there. I started playing Dungeons & Dragons in 1979. Nice. I, uh, the I first was born in 1978, just throwing that well, out there. <laughs> so, you know, so you know what I'm talking about. Exactly. I was, <laughs> right. I was cogent and totally yes. understanding. No. Roll the good, to, uh, you know, D20s in my day. <laughs> I played uh, I played at summer camp. I I'd heard about it. I'd read about it in was it like Pizzazz magazine? Did Pizzazz. It? Yeah. And you remember Pizzazz? Oh, no. Teen Beat was right, that yeah. was me. Yeah, Tiger, uh, Tiger Beat. It's, and uh, <laughs> so I knew what it was. I was very excited, but I couldn't find any copies of the game. They, at, at summer camp, someone had one, and uh, I got to play. Then I I came home, still couldn't find any, and I wound up. The only thing I could find was uh, this uh, uh, the official Dungeons and Dragons coloring album. And oh. you know how, how coloring books were really cool last year or this mm-hmm. past year, like grown-up Adult coloring, coloring books? books yeah. That happened in the late 70s. And just at the same time, D&D got hot. So there was a, a an adult coloring book. With that always a, makes it sound dirty, doesn't a, it? A grown-up <laughs> coloring book. It does, yeah. No. <laughs> grown-up coloring book uh, with a... Short story and text by Gary Gygax. I had I I loved that. Yeah, I love it. Album. I love it. I still think it's one of the best intro products ever ever made. And then I wound up getting the the box set, the first of the the starter set box sets, and off to the races after that. Who did you first play with? I could say a couple of kids at camp and <laughs> at home. I couldn't find anyone that was was into it. I made my brother DM for me. And, uh, <laughs> Older brother or younger? Younger brother. Younger brother. No, oh. I, I made him <laughs> DM for me. This makes and, sense. And uh, uh, that didn't go particularly <laughs> well. Uh, and, and I think he's forgiven me by now. Uh, was he just didn't know how to DM? Or yeah, didn't know the... No, he 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 didn't really get it. Yeah, I don't think. How old was he at the time? Uh, he would have been, uh, 79, he would have been 11. 
Oh, okay. So, so I, it's, it's just, I, it wasn't his kind of thing. It sounds a bit so. like when you want to play hockey and you put your right. little brother as the goalie. <laughs> right, and just wrap like, him I'm going to shoot on you. You're going to love it. Fighting is part of the game. you got to know how to do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sweet. Um, yeah, uh, so th- that, was, that was where I started. And then uh, uh, went through high school. I really only played it at, in the summers because at, at high school I couldn't find people that were uh, both local enough for me to get together with and interested in it. Um, now, was this in Brooklyn? This was on Long Island. Okay. No. I, I, was, uh, I was born in Brooklyn, but uh, very, very early moved to Long Island because I was too cool. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, because that's where my parents went and I decided to follow them. Good for you uh, for yeah, that. No, I mean, no, I, mean, I thought it was a good call at the time and I, I stick with it. Yeah. Um, Where in uh, Long Island? Uh, the town of Wontaw, uh, which is the gateway to Jones Beach. Ah, very, see, that's right. We had uh, that conversation before. Yeah. I loved going to Jones Beach when I lived in Brooklyn because it was just far enough away so it felt uh, like you weren't in the, in the hot, <laughs> sticky city anymore. Just on a hot, sticky beach. Just on a hot, just sticky just beach, right? I know. But the architecture around there was so cool. Like, you, it actually felt like you were like a gateway, the gateway to Jones Beach. Yes, a little bit. no, like they, felt built, like they were... built these big monument-esque stuff down it as you're driving in. There's a gigantic uh, watchtower as you're, you're coming in, or the traffic circle that went around it. Right. And it looks like a, a lighthouse, or like yeah. a, but it's a fake. It's like <laughs> a non-functioning <laughs> anything, just for pure, pure ornamental if, if anything describes Long Island, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very cool. All right, so then uh, nobody there wanted to play Dungeons & Dragons? Uh, no, you know what? Also, I was, uh, I was kind of a sporto mm. also. I, I, I live, I've had my feet in many different worlds throughout my, my life. And I what was, sport did you play? Uh, I was baseball and tennis. Was, uh, and that segued after a while pretty much to tennis. I was a, uh, Were you ranked? I was I was not ranked, but I played uh, regionally. Mm. I I uh, lost in the uh, state quarterfinals. Uh, oh man! Oh no! Still hurts. It was it was a regional quarterfinals going into the states, uh, um, but you know that's that's not bad. Yeah, and, I, and that I, was that was high I school with, for you. I practiced with people uh, that were really good. My my dad was a, a tennis coach at the. Uh, uh, Port Washington Tennis Academy, and mm-hmm. so I would go there and train with people who would go off to all kinds of tennis scholarships and uh, probably played professionally. Uh, no one who ever made it big, big, like on, on the television, big. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, that sounds a lot like uh, uh, Joe Manganiello's uh, opening to The Stream of Annihilation, where he played a lot when he was in his you know junior high years yeah. and then uh, got delved into sports during... Um, you know, high school, college years, and then found his love of Dungeons right. and Dragons again. No, I got to college. I went right back to gaming and comics. Nice. <laughs> uh, uh, when you were playing at camp, was that uh, formally introduced by the counselors? Did they have a session? No, for it? Or was no, just the kids. It was like, just the kids. Broke it yeah, out one of the kids brought stuff? it, and that's what we did with our free time. Mm. What about one of the counselors' mothers? Did she wear a hockey mask at all? <laughs> Only on Disney. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to see you. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So when you got back to college, uh, uh, how did how did that start? How did that how did your gaming? Life uh, so I got to you? college and immediately I went looking for the D and D group and uh, found that uh, <laughs> the really weird thing was that at Binghamton the the D and D group was run by locals rather than students 
and hmm. uh, they had uh, some of them had been at, at the school and um, but weren't anymore, mm-hmm. and they just hated the new kids coming in, so they made it really difficult for us. Wow, <laughs> like, they they didn't they wanted to keep running their campaign, so they let us. Everyone got to join as a first level character in the middle of their campaign. Uh. So uh, uh, <laughs> I stopped. I I played like two two times, and then that was it. And I thought, well, maybe role playing isn't for me. But as it turns out, uh, just about that time, um, uh, uh, Fantasy Games Unlimited mm-hmm. released uh, Villains and Vigilantes. Mm. And some of my in-the-dorm comics friends and I were like, oh, this looks awesome. And we, we went out and we bought it and we started what turned into be an eight-year campaign, um, which also is pretty much where I cut my first design teeth because if you know that game, it's... It's uh, it's really good, but it's really kind of open. It has lots of room for tweaking and and changing. And we did a lot of uh, of modifications and and uh, house rules. Uh, so yeah, that's where designers uh, yeah. uh, really do get to you know exercise that craft. A bit. Right. Yeah. No. You know, you you might be set for a career in this if you start playing a game and when you're. You're between games instead of saying this is what I want to pick. You start designing the next thing you want your character to have and say, "Look, this is this is like this is like Power Blast, only better." <laughs> <laughs> so the first level henchmen the, didn't ever try an uprising against the. Well, uh, they they all died, and then we got to make new first level characters. Had <laughs> people who were playing with, you know. Uh, monks and paladins that were 12th and 13th level and we were first level and can't do no. much in that no. situation no right and what? some of those guys actually later on turned out to be friends and I told them about it. they're like yeah we're sorry <laughs> <laughs> but we just we were in the middle of a big castle assault and we didn't want you guys coming in ruining everything so when did you start uh, uh, drawing? Were you always drawing during that time? Oh, I was, I've been drawing as far back as I can remember. I, uh, my, my very first published cartoons, just going back, my very first published cartoons was a, a page of cartoons called What If Darth Vader Played Tennis? <laughs> <laughs> it was published in um, College and Junior Tennis Magazine back while I was still in high school. Nice. I feel um, like he might have an advantage. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, I was uh, copying stuff out of comics, like uh, everyone does at the time. I took, I had a uh, uh, creative writing class where it, everyone else had to write a ten-page paper, and I did like a Garfield story, which I I drew. Nice. And it, it was twenty pages long, but that meant it was twenty drawings of Garfield. And, and boy, did I look out because the teacher was a huge Garfield fan. <laughs> <laughs> you did your research. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. just so, so easy. So nice. was there a particular um, time or a particular project where the two sort of came together, the cartooning and the Well, gaming? when I, I couldn't play much D&D, I was still making stuff up. I created a, a world and characters, and I, have, I still have the first map I ever put together somewhere. Oh, cool. Mm. And... Uh, uh, I'd love to see that. I love maps and how oh, they transport terrible. you and stuff like that. <laughs> it sounds really good. <laughs> it's not a good map? No, no. It's you know what? I, so when I, when, I, uh, when I first started working professionally in the industry, which is skipping over a lot of di- – my, my story goes on forever if you let me tell it. Uh, <laughs> That's but, what we're here for. Yeah, yeah. yeah but we only have an hour. Uh, <laughs> Strap so, in. Um, the first, my first job in the industry – 
uh, full time was as a graphic designer at West End Games. Mm. Uh, so that was a lot of doing maps and, and stuff. And I, I mainly got that because they couldn't find anyone else. I was trying to get an editorial job mm. and they, uh, I kept finishing second in those. Uh, but I, uh, they were happy to have me because I met the bare minimum. But you looked at everyone else in that department at what they were producing and what I was producing. And it was clear <laughs> where the real skills and interests lay. <laughs> Right, I was I was good enough, but that's about it. And uh, that show go, shows going all the way back to my very first Elfland map. It was the map of Elfland. No, well, it was it wasn't it wasn't called that. But uh, um, I don't remember the name of it. Oh man, I don't remember the name of that that continent. Uh, but it was it was all elf centered. I was I was big into big yeah. into elves. Me and Shelley. Our, our big elf, big elf, yeah. As well, well then I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I've become big into gnomes since then, but mm. and tabaxi for some reason. <laughs> yeah, now we're into tabaxi exactly. So, um, uh, so yeah, we did skip over a little bit. And uh, uh, did you work professionally before you got to West End Games? Uh, I did some freelance for West End. I, uh, um, I got in so. People I knew from Binghamton wound up working at West End full-time, which, which opened the door to some freelance. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't really going anywhere uh, big. And I, I wound up going and teaching English in Japan for five years. Oh, no way. Um, That's how you know Japanese. Yes, because I, I live there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, while I was there, I wanted to game. I'd, I'd since gotten to the point where gaming was important to me, but uh, no one knew what I was talking about. So I, <laughs> I uh, put an ad in a, uh, one of the English language newspapers uh, just kind of creating this organization. And at the same time, another guy put another ad. It happened, just happened the same week. He, I put a role-playing ad and he put a, a, ro- a wargaming ad. And oh, we nice. got together and said, you know, we should double up because that'll increase all our chances. And we created this uh, organization called the Japan's International Gamers Guild. Mm. And uh, it's still around to this day. Jig. It's kind of, yeah, jig. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and the main thing for me was to get people to send in their uh, contact information and what they wanted to play and so that you could you could set up games. And I wound up uh, making a bunch of, of very good long, long-term friends. Uh, one of them, I'm still uh, friends, and uh, he works as a editor at Viz uh, uh, Entertainment. Do uh, oh, manga. I I do some uh, localization for them. Uh, Mike Montessa. Hey, Mike. Hi, Mike. Get some. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, Sandy Antunes, who uh, started RPG.net. Oh no he way. Was one of the people there. Yeah. So there's a lot of a uh, lot of uh, people who've been in and out of the industry. Kind of. Uh, Came through that that doorway. That's pretty but cool. The, so the fact that I, I put together a, um, a gamers guild, gamer, yeah, yes, uh, but it was a, a, a newsletter. Okay. And because I was doing that and publishing that, that's what got me my layout and graphics job. Because oh. West End looked at it and said, clearly you've got the skills. That, right. I didn't tell them that I was doing it all on a word processing. Right. I never actually used a layout program. It didn't matter to them. I knew what looked good, and I could make it happen on a, on the paper. That's that's all the skills you need, really. That's right. Yeah. So did you ever bring any of the gaming into your uh, English lessons in the classroom in Japan? I did. I did. Yeah, no, I tried to. Uh, um, they didn't really want to play full-on games, but we did some, some role-playing. 
and uh, I introduced them to the idea of gas. I brought a D20 in to make them uh, decide whether their car ran out of gas. It wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> but not not too strong on the game end because they they wanted it to feel like. Uh, like work, mm-hmm. right? right. I'm imagining it's it was a lot like uh, the opening scenes in Stripes when Harold Ramis is trying to teach them how to. <laughs> 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 that's that's my go-to all the time. Do run, run, run. Yeah. Do run, run. <laughs> Listen, I could uh, I could do a two-hour stand-up bit on teaching English <laughs> in Japan. <laughs> I've got it all laid out. One of these I made coming to town near you soon. <laughs> But I can in Japan, but that that's a different interview. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get Unless into that you later. want it to be, <laughs> so I can. I I never get tired of telling my my Japan stories. But there's the, a bunch the, of um, the game stuff. You know, I I let's say I put it in an English language newspaper, mm-hmm. and I got some calls back from people who were like, "Oh man, I play champions. I play this," and I got other calls back by people who were like, "Hey, I'm I'm calling about the role playing." Oh. What what kind of role playing are you into? <laughs> oh no, this is no, sorry. Yeah, you're like different, uh, <laughs> different group. You roll the d twenty on your uh, That's uh, right. persuasion. That's you're like, right. oh, I think you maybe you should talk to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> There's other other outlets for that uh, in, in Japan. I've yeah. heard. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, they they just wanted some in English. It's <laughs> oh, I see. This makes sense. Uh, so we mentioned West End games a couple of times, but now I'm thinking about uh, our listeners and people uh, watching this on the Twitch may not know what West End actually is. Uh, we, we it's, been, it's been a while. It's been a while. West, West End was one of the first generation uh, uh, third third party, I guess it was the equivalent of a third party or smaller publisher. They did a lot of board games. They got famous for doing board games, um, but they got really famous because they're the ones that licensed Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they did the first Star Wars role-playing game. And that was in the uh, late 70s? Uh, that was in the early 80s, okay. I think. And then how did they get involved with Dungeons & Dragons? Because there was like a oh, bit of a crossover. Well, they, they didn't really get involved. They got involved in that TSR. <laughs> TSR was, was famous at the time for just finding a company with that was doing good work and stealing all the people from it. And oh. so TSR had already trained everyone they wanted to out of Game Designers Workshop mm-hmm. at GDW, and then uh, the next place they turned was West End because West End had, like I say, they had Star Wars and mm-hmm. Paranoia and uh, World of Indiana Jones and a bunch of other uh, games and, and people who were producing good products. So they started uh, um, fil- fulfilling their staffing needs by calling up the next person on the on the contact list at West End. I see, I see. So, so it was more of a uh, TSR wanting to, to uh, that was in TSR's uh, heyday, the, the uh, company that uh, yeah. Guy Gax created to, early, to publish early, Dungeons early 90s. Dragons. Right. Uh, so Ed Stark was uh, the first person from uh, West End. Oh my got, gosh. Uh, in another life, out. I interviewed Ed Stark for something completely different in uh, uh, games yeah. uh, journalism, right? And uh, yeah, I always went to try to go back to his tabletop roots, but yeah. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned him. Well, there you go. You should. He's got a lot of good stories to tell. I know. I, know. I, I believe he's working for Zenimax now doing the new uh, uh, Elder Scrolls yes. online, right? Yeah. That is exactly where he is. Yeah. Uh, good guy. So um, it's very good guy. Uh, and then uh, Bill Olmsdahl is another guy who's someone uh, – both of them also go back to Binghamton. I know them from oh, no, from right. Binghamton. Uh, and then uh, Miranda Horner. Mm-hmm. And then I think I was uh, the next person to come out uh, – uh, 
to Lake Geneva mm-hmm. and uh, join the, the major team, the, join the big club. Nice. So what, what, uh, what year was that? That was 95, 95. 1995. So you moved to Wat- Madison. To, well, not, no, to Lake Geneva. No, oh, sorry, yes, Lake Geneva. It's halfway between Madison and Milwaukee. It's smack dab in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, for, and then you were in Binghamtown before that, doing freelance stuff for West End? Or no, I was in, I was in uh, um, whatever little Pennsylvania town. I was in, uh, um, I can't remember the name of the town that West End was in. It's the oh, same name of the continent that you couldn't remember. That's right. <laughs> it is. That's exactly where it is. It's, you've uh, got it's this mental little hole bitty, in your butt. little bitty place in Pennsylvania. Uh, is it near Allentown? That's the only no, thing I know. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's near Wilkesbury. Oh, okay. In Scranton. All right, so down Harrisburg. Uh, uh, no, up, up in the up in the northeast corner. Oh, okay, Scranton's the only one that I can lay claim to having visited. <laughs> well, you know, if you're sorry, I'm sorry about that. It was a, we wanted to go see where the office was set, <laughs> and uh, so now I can say say there. So, so in any case, West End to to TSR. Yes, and West Geneva. End to TSR, and I jumped on. I was on the uh, Dragonlance and Ravenloft and mm-hmm. uh, Dark Sun team. And uh, started editing uh, Ravenloft. Uh, just kind of threw me in to the to the deep end with the mists and uh, all the horrible <laughs> things there. And uh, after a while, that was just as the uh, Dragonlance Fifth Age game was launching. Okay. Uh, and so uh, Skip Williams and Bill Connors had done the initial design on it, but we're not going to stick with the line. And they needed someone to uh, to be a designer on mm-hmm. that. And so here's. Here's one of my – when you're going in, make sure you know terminology mm. because know the jargon. when I got hired by TSR, I was working as a graphic – in graphics and I wanted to get into editorial and I really wanted to get into design. But I thought that a designer was a person who created the, the basic game from nothing okay. and that the people that wrote follow-up materials were writers. Mm. And – I didn't really want to design a whole game. I wanted to be a writer. Uh, but really what I wanted to be was a designer because that's what, that's what the job is called. When I was being interviewed um, uh, by David Wise for the editorial position I got, mm-hmm. uh, well, actually the first one I didn't get, which was very sad, uh, he asked me if I was interested in doing design too. He said, you know, we, we have, we've just hired a bunch of editors. We're really looking for some designers. And mm-hmm. it's like... Well, I mean, I could do that. I don't really have any experience, uh, but I, I, I could. He said, no, well, if you don't have any experience, we're really looking for people who can pick up the ball and run with it. Right. Really what he was saying was he wanted people who could write supplemental material. And I had already written three books. Right. But I so you just, had the experience. I had, I had the jargon rock. Uh-huh. And so I didn't get that job. And it, it, it put a three-month uh, hiatus between when – they might have hired me, and they did actually hire me. Right, right. That makes oh, sense. But three months, not... Uh, yeah, no, could could have been worse. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I really blew... I could have... Those three months, been, you could uh, have created, you know, the ultimate D&D campaign setting. That's right. But as it worked out really well, because uh, for me, being where I was working on the uh, the Fifth Age game... Yeah. Um, ...really kind of suited my style. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a big mechanics guy. I'm a, I'm a small game kind of... Fun, fast, uh, interesting, uh, uh, different take on stuff. And if you know the uh, 
the fifth age game was a card-based role-playing game instead of a dice-based one. Oh, yeah. So I was just going uh, uh, to ask yeah, more details on that because I'm not sure everyone yeah. knows. Uh, so I came in after the game was initially designed and pretty much became the, the lead designer. It wasn't my title, but I did uh, – Steve Miller and I were the two designers working on it. Mm-hmm. We half and half were putting out pretty much all of the, the material, and I did uh, – um, the big thing I did there was I got to write the Dragonlance Bestiary yeah. uh, for the Fifth Age. Ooh, um, cool. Which do, was a, a just – it was awesome. I, I, I didn't say whether it – I mean, other people have told me that they loved it, but I just loved doing it. It was a mm-hmm. great uh, a great experience because it was half uh, – in fact, even three-quarters narrative mm. and then uh, just a, as minimum – Mechanics is necessary. It was written as a perspective of an in-world book, the kind of thing that you really is kind of more common nowadays. Is yeah, Volos Guide products. to Monsters yes, yes. is basically well, this that. was back in you know yeah ninety six ninety five ninety ninety six. Um, they stole your and, idea. Psh, you know Mike, what I that Mike Merles and Jeremy Crawford. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what they can pay me later. Um, yeah, so it was a book written by one of the the Dragonlance main characters, Caramon Majir, mm-hmm. and uh, it, so it's his recollections of all the monsters he's met over the, his his lifetime mm-hmm. with an editor, uh, Bertram the ascetic from the from the Great Library, who came in and filled in with notes saying, "Well, you know, he might be exaggerating here. He was a little drunk when he told this story." But <laughs> so it's a, it really had that kind of very flavorful. I like that when it has like when you have like uh, uh, elements that make it feel like it's it's real like you're like yeah. oh you're just you, this is part of the world it makes right. it, and especially when it, there's a intermediary who's then explaining it to you you get all those character benefits out yeah. of it which is really super cool and the uh, the idea really was that you could hand the book if you just cover up the game <laughs> stats you could hand the book to your players and they could know everything that was on there it oh. was written you know here's my perspective let me tell you about what happened when I fought it and the the editor says, mm, reports vary, so I don't know if I'd be sure about that. Or we hear about this other thing, could be true too. And then the, the stats would lay out what it really is. Right, that's cool. So, uh, well, by the way, anybody in chat, if you want to uh, ask any questions of Stan about any of the stuff we covered or stuff from the future, uh, go ahead and just uh, throw it in the chat. I'm monitoring here before. So put question mark, uh, question in uh, uh, big all caps before it, and uh, I'll, I'll if I... Uh, see it pop up here. I'll try to fire it away at at Stan, um, and I'll dodge. And you'll dodge right out of the way, right? <laughs> exactly. If you can, um, but yeah, what, talk about what the Fifth Age game was, because I don't think I mean I think a, a lot of people are familiar with Dragonlance, but I'm not sure. Well, the the idea. So I say I came in and it was it was in editing and and in going into layout. Yeah. Um, but the concept was to do a Dragonlance game. Dragonlance novels were super popular, and and they wanted. They found out or, or suspected that there's a uh, not as strong a correlation between the people who are reading it and the people who are playing it. So the idea was to create a role-playing game that the readers would feel more comfortable playing, that they, that they wouldn't be the barrier of the three core books. So uh, it was supposed to be quicker to play mm-hmm. and uh, more casual in its style. And uh, even the bo- the products themselves were made to look like books, so that they would could be shelved on the same shelf with the hardcover books that, that we're selling. That turned out to be a problem on the sales end, which 
didn't learn about for a while. Um, <laughs> but uh, did they keep uh, uh, a lot of that stuff insulated from from the people who were working on the books? Yeah, the, one of the problems that TSR had. Um, was that information did not flow back and forth between the sales team and the mm. brand team and the creative team uh, very smoothly at all. The the writers and the designers and the editors uh, were very close, were, were uh, uh, very tight uh, groups. But um, we often would, <laughs> let's say with the Dragonlance, we, to- we talked with the sales team, we told them what we wanted, and they just kind of said, yeah, yeah, okay, uh-huh, and they took notes and left the meeting and never came back and told us, that can't happen. Mm. And, and also, uh, we never got real sales numbers. We'd, right. we'd find out, like, years later, after we moved to, uh, out to Wizards, and some of those numbers got into the brand team, and the brand team shared them with us. We, you know, we thought that we were doing really good with the, the Dragonlance is a great example. We thought we were doing pretty good and we got out here and we were pushing, we we're doing some more new stuff. And uh, then uh, we actually got the numbers and, and even like I was at that point, I was a, the uh, assistant creative director mm-hmm. and we had just finished a meeting where we were say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Here's our two year plan. And they showed us the real numbers. And I looked at the, the, my boss, the creative director, and I said, we need to cancel this line. Why are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> we're not, we're not selling anything. And, and, but no one told us. Oh man. So, and was- that's how you wound up. Like there were other things that happened. Like, um, <laughs> the, uh, I don't know if you remember the Dark Sun box set that had the cloth map in it. Mm. It was really uh, it was a, the the second version of it in second edition, mm-hmm. and it was super awesome, high end. And it turned out that it cost more to produce than we were selling it for. What? <laughs> no, but no one told us. We'd we'd had <laughs> we'd gotten estimates on what costs were, and no one ever came back and told us the real thing. So the product just ran through with this cloth map to pull the cloth map out, and it's it's profitable but everyone had a cloth map and so everyone was losing money um oh birthright gosh. had a point where they they only they wouldn't let them print more than 35,000 of the I think that's the number of the box set the initial box set and it sold out and we went back and said okay we got to reprint and we we're told we can't reprint I said well why can't we reprint cuz it only sold 35,000 <laughs> <laughs> That's like a Murphy's Law. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I say Wizards has not been immune to that, but it's nothing like it was in in Lake Geneva. Well, were you you there or had any contact with uh, Gygax and his family at all? I No, I only met Gary on a couple of occasions. By the time I uh, got there in in 95, he was not at all all part of the company and not part of the social scene that I was – I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, I know other people who, who did, and mm-hmm. I often get to hear great stories about that. But uh, sadly, yeah, yeah, I, I got let's like say I got to meet him and and have a couple of quick conversations with him. But uh, um, yeah, this is all part of the, the the history of you know what happened to TSR after yeah uh, uh, his his ouster. Uh, it's always interesting to hear because yes. it's like how do you you know you yes. went from being you know kind of this heyday of this new idea of, of, of tabletop role-playing games and then made it almost, sounds like almost every decision necessary to run it into the ground before uh, <laughs> before Wizards was able to step in. Well, you know, it's weird, right? Because uh, 
some of those decisions, you know, a lot of them worked individually, mm-hmm. but I don't think the big problem was the company was not run well. The company was never run well. Yeah. By by from what I can see from from that point on, it, it was all uh, decisions were made in micro vision and uh, a lot of things like like I said before, but we'll make up by that by printing more of them. Right, uh, uh, Dragon Dice. Do you guys know? Remember Dragon Dice? Have you heard the any of those? No, s- no. What stories? A, I, I, so I dra- I've heard a bit about. Dra- it. So Dragon Dice. Uh, I I forget. It, it's a game made of dice where you roll them. So mm-hmm. it, it was uh, the big thing was that they wanted to get it to uh, Gen Con. It needed to show up at Gen Con, and things were uh, running late. Uh, it was a little behind schedule, and so the decision was made. Uh, at the highest levels in Lake Geneva that we were going to airship it over. And we thought, okay, well, we'll airship some over. We'll sell them out at Gen Con. The rest will come normal speed and we'll sell it out. Turns out that, no, the decision was made to airship the entire print run. Oh, my god! Which meant that it was impossible for it to, to make money, right? It cost too much in shipping for it to make money. But it sold out. And went back to print and then eventually did make a little bit of money. But it would have been huge money if they had not airshipped the entire. We will uh, hand deliver each set yeah, to yeah. Uh, consumers. And With so, a smile and a, and a, right. and a cake. <laughs> right. the, uh, uh, the story I heard, uh, the stories that I know and stories that I heard, the story that I heard was that then we went back to print more and uh, Lorraine Williams went to the printers in China and said, well, why don't you – you need to uh, give me a better price on these dice. And they said to her, well, you don't, you don't order enough. If you ordered more, we'd give you a better price. And she said, well, all right, well, then we're going to print a million of them. And the, the other people in TSR were like, we're going to print a, a, million, uh, a million dice total? No, we're going to print a million sets. Oh. And they printed this, the, the basic unit of the Dragon Dice product, which was used in different different ways. It was a, a plastic bag with a certain number of dice, a certain value of dice in it. Yeah. Printed a million of those. <laughs> to get the cheapest To amount. get the cheapest price. But then we had to find a way to sell a million. Now, this thing had already sold several hundred thousand. Like, it, it was selling super well. But to print, to sell another million was just crazy. That is and, crazy. Uh, and lo and behold, Dragon Dice kind of... And then, so it sounds like you guys yeah, then you yeah. kind of come up with ways to put dragon dice and other yes. things to get rid of oh, yeah. this stuff. We had, we had uh, days where we were uh, pulled. Uh, there's uh, a two-day period. I clearly remember the two-day period where everyone was taking off what they were working on to come up with new dragon dice pitches, things you could do with the dragon dice mm. that, that could be either sold as separate things or printed in the magazines or different, different ways to use what was around so that we could sell it. Now, I, let's say I don't know that the million thing is true. I, uh, I love that story. There are many stories I love that I, I can't <laughs> say I'm sure are true. Uh, I can say for sure that we were pulled off. The, everyone in the design and editing department were pulled off whatever they were doing for two or three days to come up with new Dragon Dice pitches. So apocryphal or not, we do, we do like a story. That I is, know, right? <laughs> let's, if we wish hard enough, it can be true. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it was a billion. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's that's inflation. 
so here's a question from chat, and it's a good segue into into uh, the the now times. Uh, so uh, this is from Anorak Gaming. He says, uh, "What are you working on now, and is it D and D related?" That's the important part of the question. Uh, yes. Well, so I say now I'm I'm the producer for for D and D that you can uh, talk about publicly. I right. Well, the thing is, <laughs> I can't. Uh, I I am uh, uh, basically my job is to make sure that everyone else is doing their jobs on time. Mm. Uh, so uh, with um, uh, Tomb of Annihilation, I was very much involved in making sure that, well, I mean, just Chris Perkins, it was very easy for me. Right. But, I, but he would tell me what was going on, and I keep track of it and f- make sure that uh, uh, different people knew when, when we were coming, that I set up so that we'd have the... Uh, Freelance editors would be ready so things would get handed off and we would stay on schedule so it could get handed to layout people at the right time. Uh, so my job right now is going over the schedules for all of the upcoming products and making sure that things are aligned and we've got one product that's going to be going into editing next week and uh, one that's going into layout in about four weeks. Mm. So, uh, so it's all the basically all the RPG books that yes, uh, you have yes. your, your hands into. So you worked on Tomb of Annihilation as yes. well as Danathar's Guide to Everything, which we announced yep. already. Um, so and uh, one I of them has left the I building. Think, uh, well, I did a Ish. I did a lot of work on uh, on um, Tales from the Yawning Portal. That's right. Uh, so which uh, which page has the most work that you did on it? Uh, that would be uh, page uh, fourteen. <laughs> That's my my favorites too. Yeah, it's a yeah, really good no, page. Good <laughs> uh, oh, all right, I, so yeah, uh, I sweated over that one. Here's a uh, uh, question out of left field. Uh, what do dragons dream of when they take a little dragon snooze? And maybe we, we should have a pen and paper <laughs> <laughs> with you so you can draw this question. That out. would be great. Uh, <laughs> they uh, uh, they dream of electric meeple. <laughs> the, I I had my own question. I mean, one of the uh, projects we had worked on way back when uh, on the website was the Typos of Doom, Mm. uh, which if if you're not familiar, this was uh, Stan uh, being fed some of the... the, the the misprints or, or well they weren't no these were the, the thing about typos of doom were they were typos that got caught Ca- right by everyone by, by Miranda everyone, Horner uh, by a lot of people Miranda okay. Miranda kept the the great list mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know everyone always complains when a book comes out that you know if they find a typo and they have no idea what typos were caught and this was kind of a these these are ways of remembering that these is work we did that the public never actually saw because our editors worked. But then you would cartoonify yes. uh, the, the typos. So I would take the typo and then uh, make a, a pun based off whatever mistyping it was and do a, a cartoon. did a, a bunch of those for the website. I wound up doing a few of those on the 10 by 10 tunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still have the list, which I have been adding to over the years as as friends and, and uh, colleagues have Sometimes they post them on Twitter or they just email me their their typos. Um, and another former uh, TSR editor, uh, uh, Ray Valise, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, is completely – well, no, he's, he's doing work for some other companies now, uh, um, mainly, mainly Monty Cook games. Um, but he also works for a, 
a university and does a lot of editing for their press. And he keeps a big, long list of typos. And we've been talking about getting together and and uh, reviving typos of doom. I, I was going to cool. ask if you had caught any from Tomb of Annihilation, from Tales from the Awning Portal. Or- I did, I did not. But I'm not. I don't do the editing, mm. so no. That I'm sure there were. We'll track some down. Yeah. The, <laughs> <laughs> the one thing we didn't ever mention was which books they came from, usually, because. <laughs> Because then know, people could figure. That it. meant that meant you knew who wrote it. Or oh, I see. Right. Who that who did sense. not catch it and gave it to an editor in all seriousness? Really? You you want me to type that? You want me to print that? Yeah. I was going to ask. Were there any a few uh, too risque? To yes. <laughs> oh yes. Oh yeah. There are a few that were too uh, um, sensitive, shall we say, for uh, wizard's taste. Um, so how did? Uh, all right. So going back to the the, the drawing of stuff. Uh, uh, when did that part of, of, of what you did get into because like, you were so, yeah, so in Dungeon Magazine? My, 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 um, the weird thing about me and my career is I, I do at least three, well, four different things well enough to be considered worth hiring for wizards to hire to do, right? I, I design, I edit, I manage, and I cartoon. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, which is great. For, for me, it keeps me entertained, but it also means that if I'm spending a lot of time doing one or two, it means I'm not doing the other two. And the, the fact of the matter is that of all the things I do I, that I, I love the most, it's cartooning. Mm. And uh, it's the one I get the least opportunity to exercise, which makes me a little sad sometimes. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm always looking. I'm always finding ways, pushing and finding ways. Um, so let's say I'd done some uh, – I started off with a uh, – the tennis cartoons, and yep. uh, mm-hmm. I did other illustrations for that magazine and a couple of other local magazines. I had a comic strip that ran in a local family newspaper for a while um, and uh, did a couple of spot for Dungeon for a couple of different articles and uh, wound up uh, doing a comic strip for um, – I always say that it ran in Dungeon, but it actually ran in Polyhedron when when Dungeon and Polyhedron were flip magazines. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I created a, a strip called uh, Bolt and Quiver, mm-hmm. uh, which ran for about 30 strips worth, something like that, in, uh, in Dungeon. And uh, then Dungeon went away. Very sad. Very sad. But, but then Cobalt Quarterly came around, and Wolf Bauer came to me and said, hey, I'd love to bring back... Uh, Bolt and Quiver or you know, something like Bolt and Quiver. I said, well, you can have exactly Bolt and Quiver. And so <laughs> I, I did another, uh, I think it was in every issue. Yeah. I did uh, Bolt and Quiver and started the 10 by 10 tune mm-hmm. uh, in, in uh, Cobo Quarterly 2. What's the 10 by 10 tune? It's a, they're single panel cartoons. Mm. Uh, generally D&D-esque, but sometimes... Sometimes fantasy, sometimes just geeky. Um, we, we have a few. I, I don't know if uh, Sean is showing them. It sounds yeah. like he is. But, hey, uh, Sean. Like, <laughs> cartoons, cartoons everywhere. Cartouche. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah, no, going through this, I went and looked at the Bolton Quivers uh, this weekend. Mm-hmm. I hadn't looked at them in a long time. And I'd say I, I really, they, they were harder to do. And I never, I were always done last minute. And I never really, uh, I don't say I didn't love them as much as I, but you know they were always. I, I was was were fran- was frantic when I was doing that. So I just went back and read 
the whole run of them, and I was like, man, I, I'm pretty funny. <laughs> it's like, this, this is pretty good. <laughs> what, what made it harder for them? Was it because of 10 by 10, you've got like just one punch? 10 by 10 is, is yes, it's just it's an two. idea, and, is, and it's there. But the Bolton Quiver was that um, it started out as a story strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first 10 or so tell one long story and then the editors so the editors kept changing what they wanted out of it and and really I mean it, uh, I've, I've been that person <laughs> yeah. uh, you've been that yeah. editor been so uh, <laughs> you know uh, Eric Mona after doing the first 10 he's like you know I was really hoping that these would be more like rulesy like they make jokes about the rules and mm-hmm. so I was like I can do that sure sure so I then had to change the muscle but the the characters were set up and very antagonistically and so I still found myself trying to tell something of a story uh, with them right but the one the one no frame... one no one could ever remember which one was bolt and which one was quiver and <laughs> I, I, mean, you... I remember okay, but no yeah. no one ever seemed to know so I I got to one the point had a where scar, I had to I change it <laughs> so after a while you you'll notice that uh, it starts being so every strip, one of them will call the other by name <laughs> just to kind of reinforce it. I do that when I write um, dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> just to make sure people are like, this is the person <laughs> who's talking to that person. Is um, that a Tamax and Zomat joke? With this that was, oh. yeah. <laughs> right? The G.I. Joe? Yes, right? Yeah. yeah, right? Curbs and Guard. Nice. Uh, so here's a question, <laughs> and it actually dovetails into something you and I uh, were talking about last week, uh, which we might want to get uh, solicit some people, some feedback from people. Uh, are uh, so uh, it's is a long question. I'm trying to summarize it. Are there new and exciting ways that you're hoping the D and D brand will expand in the near future? Twitch seems to be a driving a shift in the meeting. Are there new and experimental things you're hoping might come and see? Into I the am. Light? Yeah. So I have some very high hopes. <laughs> so talking, yeah, let's, let's do like a quick version of this. And then. I was talking to you last week uh, about an idea for a Twitch show, which would feature uh, two or three cartoonists or or artists, and um, it would be kind of a, a a weird mix between match game and uh, Pictionary or, or win lose and draw. Yeah, win lose draw. Yeah. So it would be the the host would have a, a card which would set up a situation and end with a blank. So the the rogue forgot his lockpick. So when he came across a, a door he couldn't open, he used his blank, and then everyone would have to draw what they thought the right solution was, and and we. Uh, show it on air. Yeah, it's uh, based off a off a Japanese TV show I used to watch, uh, uh, which I I can't find on the internet anywhere. So I'm not I'm, I'm afraid. So it doesn't like, exist. I'm afraid I made it up, but I remember <laughs> so clearly. It was it was every Friday afternoon. It was uh, uh, basically the the uh, manga cartoonist challenge, mm. and it was just like that. They would they would have a, a question and and. That everyone would start drawing, and one by one they'd answer it. And if someone was very fast, they'd draw a second answer or a third answer. And so it was. Ooh, I like that idea. Yeah, yeah being uh, able to like you know, iterate on it a few right, times. Right. It's, it requires uh, requires a combination of people being able to talk while they draw. Yeah. And then someone who can draw fast enough to do an idea and then do it again. 
But uh, what do you guys think? You think that's a cool idea? Would you like to see something like that I in think the future? It's got a lot of technical hurdles to it, so that's what I brought yeah. up. I was like, "Well, we're gonna have to." And I'm sure Sean and Ryan are like, "What are you talking about? No, don't do that." Because yeah, right, it would have to like you'd show what they're drawing and everything like that. So, uh, what do you guys think? I no, know. it'd be interesting on, especially on a live stream, because the audience would be able to ask some of the questions. The audience yeah, would be able to vote right. on the answers, and and to do it that way would be yeah. pretty fun. Oh, that would be cool. So if they could vote through it with like bits or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, you, all right. what do you guys think? We'll give it a go. I think about it. I think it's worth trying. Well, it's, it stands on board. That's what I. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> I am in. I'm so in. And so, who would you, who would be your like dream team of uh, of cartoonists in the Seattle area that are D and D bent? Oh wow! Um, Not to throw any names under the bus or anything like that, but just no. Be like, I mean, oh, the, yeah. my first my first pitch was people in house because we had them here. Like we've got a bunch oh, of right. We've that got makes sense. Uh, um, Richard Witters, right, uh, and Emmy Tanji, who's a right. good draw. Yes, yes. Uh, so Adam Lee, is Adam a good Lee, draw. he doodles yes. quite a bit. Yes, uh, it was uh, Richard and Adam were the two. That I sit right near them, so this kind of came up like that. But Emmy would be fantastic. Uh, um, nice. Scott Kurtz would be great. Oh yeah, I would we could love totally to get Scott. Scott. I would love to get Scott or or Chris Straub. I feel like both of them would be into it. Um, at least, at least as like a, a guest appearance to be. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. Oh, sure. I would. Yeah. And Jason Thompson has done a lot of the yeah. cartoon maps for for D and D as well. Actually, has a board game that has a sort of drawing premise as well. Yes. So oh, okay. It'd be a lot of fun. Can he draw fast though? He can draw fast. Yeah. I, I believe he can draw fast. The one thing I've learned from playing, um, boy, it's, it's not Pictionary, but there's. Uh, Drawing games that you play yeah. at home. Ooh. It's it's good to have somebody who draws well. It's also hilarious to have the guest artist who draws horrifically bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, can I do that? Right. Can I just be like the stick figure guy right. with like trying to guess what, what those are? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's awesome. No, the key so the problem the, the same technical problems we were talking about this is yeah. <clears> if you have people who can draw and you want them to do something decent, it the it it's not something that's super fast. It's not like Pictionary where it's like, bap, 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 bap. look, look, triangle. It's a triangle. So yeah, you need at least a good like three yeah. or four minutes of time. A little bit of time for them right? to, to draw out what they're – I keep hitting this thing. I hope that isn't coming through anyway. Ryan is going to be um, very upset. Look at <laughs> yeah, him. He's, oh, he's like, oh, my God. That- so I'm never getting ass back. Um, <laughs> Cool. You know, and someone else in chat here, uh, Cole Drake, just said uh, Curtis Weeby, who uh, does uh, the Rat Queens comic. Yeah. He said he did something similar to this uh, on his live stream, and he's somewhat local. I think he's in uh, the Vancouver area. There you go. Boy, that is wildly timely uh, for the Dragon Plus uh, issue coming out at the end of the month. We're going to have a Rat Queens scenario that Curtis Weeby had uh, created. Did you guys know that? I don't know that we've announced that yet. But Go ahead yes. and, yeah, yes. it's new. But uh, the Rat Queens, uh, there will be a scenario in the, in the next issue of Dragon Plus. That's awesome. Yeah. So. Is, it, uh, is it too risque for Dragon Plus part? <laughs> <laughs> this is, and Jason Thompson could say the same thing. One of my practices is to tamp down the jokes to, to the point where they're not risque anymore. So. Oh, I know. What are you, like I a high school st- principal? I, step, I am. I step on the fun all over the place. I know. <laughs> Which is funny because if you know Bart personally, he's not that person at all. He will <laughs> go was, into the... What was the principal in Back to the Future? Skinner? Yeah. It's like... Right. Some, yeah. That's you. <laughs> nice, guys. So check out Dragon Plus. When is that coming out? Uh, that will be coming out the last week of June. Uh, we always aim for the last week of the, the every other month. It's like next week. It is next week. Wow. So we're putting the issue together at the moment. I'm very excited uh, about that as well. So we'll, well soon. I can't wait to see it. I am sorry, Elvin Wizard King. We won't get to hear the story of Spellfire, but we will 
<laughs> at some point when we get... Uh, I'm not sure which story of Spellfire. There's but many. <laughs> there are many. So I'm sorry we didn't get you out because we got to wrap this up now. But... Uh, See, I told you. Now you have a reason to get back on, not even just for the uh, for the drawing uh, show. But I'm happy to come here anytime. I say I, we've we've scratched the surface. Yes. Of of stories that I I didn't even think we any of the stories I expected to tell did I tell today. There's a lot. There's yeah. a lot to mine. You've got a long uh, uh, creative history here, <laughs> and you're in the building, so we can be like, hey, come on in and talk sure. about stuff. Sure. You know where I sit. Uh, awesome. Yes. Stan, uh, where can people find out more about about you and what in your your work? So I'm other than uh, what, my my website is uh, Stanex S T A N N E X dot com. Right now, it's filled as I was saying earlier, mostly with sumo stuff. <laughs> we just, so yeah, I didn't even delve into that. Get to, get to the sumo, uh, but uh, that's that's always a good place to find it. Uh, but that Stanex is also my uh, handle at uh, on Twitter and on Facebook, so you can find me there. Thanks for having me on, guys. No problem. Great. Oh, Thank absolutely. you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, that was so great talking to Stan. He, I, I felt like we did just scratch the surface. There's so much more to get into. It, it is a lot of fun to talk with Stan. I have the privilege of sitting very close to him in my cubicle area, and he, he is a very good regaler of stories. Yeah. Uh, and, and hearing about his life in Japan and his cartooning work, it's always always a pleasure. I know. I didn't even want to delve into the uh, stand-up comedy part of it, but I know he has had done stand-up in his past as well. I did not even I think, know that. I think he has. So yeah, we'll yeah. have to have him back on. And same thing, apocryphal or not, now that's the story. <laughs> it's real. It's actually, it's it's a truth. It happened. Uh, also, thank you so much, Bart, for uh, uh, stepping in uh, for Shelly. Of course. Always a pleasure. Um, where can people find out about you and ask you questions about Dragon Plus? Uh, I'm on Twitter occasionally at uh, Bart underscore Carol, uh, B-A-R-T underscore C-A-R-R-O-L-L. I also work on the D&D website, dnd.wizards.com, and with Dragon Plus at dragonmag.com. Dragon Plus is amazing. I can't wait for the uh, uh, all the stuff that's coming in this issue, but most especially the uh, the Rat Queen scenario. That'll be fun. Cool. That should be a lot of fun. Nice. Uh, you can ask me questions at Greg Tito. I'm on Twitter there. Um, and, of course, ask anything about Dungeons & Dragons at uh, Wizards underscore DND. And you send people to dnd.wizards.com, but I like to send them just to dungeonsanddragons.com. It's easy to remember. Throw us, you, know, you can get right in there. But like, both will go to place. the same place. That's the amazing <laughs> thing about it. Uh, so thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode of Dragon Talk. And as always, you can watch us record this live Mondays around 2 p.m. Pacific time on twitch.tv slash dnd. We've got a lot more weekly shows coming at you, including uh, more talk show stuff like this maybe, maybe some game show art shows uh, still in development, as well as, of course, live play with all the groups that we had at Stream of Annihilation uh, in Preparation for when Tomb of Annihilation comes out on September 19th, worldwide. All right, I think that's it, everybody. We'll see you next week. Uh-huh.